Hello and good day, P56, and welcome to episode six of the podcast. Thank you for your continued support, sharing, and listening over the past month and a half. After a brief break due to the election and other goings-on in the aviation sphere, I'm happy to be back with the first of what should be a very interesting series of conversations with some fantastic guests. Kicking off P-56's return to the airwaves is John Ostrauer, editor-in-chief of The Air Currents, one of the newest and arguably most in-depth specialized aviation news and insight publishers on the market today. Prior to launching The Air Current, John has served as the aviation editor for CNN Worldwide, as an aviation and aerospace reporter for The Wall Street Journal, and as an award-winning editor with Flight Blogger for Flight Global and Flight International Magazine. John is a Boston native, a graduate of the George Washington University School of Media and Public Affairs, and is currently phoning in live from Seattle, Washington. John, welcome to the podcast, and thank you for joining me today. I've been a really great fan of the work that you and your editorial partner, Courtney Miller, have done with The Air Current in the last year, and uh, really wanted to have a really robust conversation about some of the things that you both have been doing, some of the analyses, and some of the current events that are happening in the industry today. Um, So before we get into some of the current events, I wanted to talk a little bit about The Air Current itself. Um, It launched in the last year and a half. What sets the air current apart and how is this kind of self-writing process going for you? Well, you know, first off, thank you. I really appreciate, uh, you know, you you saying that and thank you for, for, for being a subscriber, you know, look, we, we, we can't do anything. We can't do any of what we do without, uh, without, you know, folks who, who, you know, invest their, their hard earned dollars and, and say, Hey, this is valuable. So thank you for that. Uh, the the air current has been so it was born out of uh, a really a desire to so I start every day asking the question what do I want to know and what do I want to read and I think if you ask uh, for someone's time because we're all stretched so thin we're exhausted the the you know yes we're in the middle of COVID but I think this was true even before before the pandemic that. People just didn't. People had. There's so many different forces competing for your attention, and when you ask for someone's time, you have to make it valuable. You have to say you are investing, you know, you know the the hours of your day to learn something new and something that you're not going to see anywhere else. And that was our our big driving force that. We saw a type of aviation coverage that was out there. There's a lot of very good aviation coverage, but there was there wasn't a lot of aviation coverage that was taking the the events of the day and putting them into a larger context for for really answering not just hey this happened, but why did this happen and what does the, what really what does this mean uh, going forward in a larger context for the industry for the the companies that are that are that are making these decisions so it was really born from from that and to and to go deeper and to ultimately be a quiet place on the internet i mean there's so many there's so many ads and there's so many pop-ups and there are so many you know things vying for your attention as you're trying to read something we say okay no this has to be a quiet place. You know, we, we're, we're not ad driven. Um, we are we're, we're very much content centered and, and subscriber driven. And, and because of that, we say, you know, when we ask for your time and, and, and give you something to read, we have to we have to make sure it is valuable. And we don't have as much content, but 
what what we uh, what we lack in volume, we make up for in spades and value. And so you're going to learn something that that you're not going to see anywhere else. You're going to see a perspective that you're you're not seeing anywhere else. And you're going to see you're going to you know you know you know ultimately tr you know take what what we what we serve and we, we we try to build for you and plug it into your mental model of the industry to make it stronger to make it clearer to to begin to sort of see all where all the chess pieces are on the board so you can make better decisions as a professional um, or as someone who loves this industry and uh, really give you a, a, a headset for, for thinking about the future so that is that is my my uh, my nutshell uh, on the air current that's a it's a great nutshell and it's a really great descriptor for what is available with regards to the insight and I know for myself I like taking that deeper dive as someone who appreciates getting into the wonky nerdy aspects of the industry it really does give everyone the opportunity so i have to hand it to you both for the the work that you're doing there's been a lot of topics that have been covered in your, your short history working with the air current from boeing to industry recovery from covid19 to electric aircraft was most recently shared are there any stories that stick out of as being of particular importance or pride for you you know it's really interesting i i i I, I'm really lucky in that I, I when when we used to travel, <laughs> I, I you know I, I I had the chance to to go visit uh, you know companies and see what they were doing and, and and have different types of conversations about strategy and technology, and you know the the some of my favorites you know there's one the you know one that really stands out um, from a technology perspective is I had a chance to spend some time with Garmin in the middle of 2019. It was actually a, a very quick very quick you know dive in and out of out of uh, Eastern Kansas, uh, but I, I had a chance to um, literally demonstrate their new emergency auto land technology. They took me up in a in a um, in a, a Piper, and we flew around uh, the Olathe, Kansas area, and they pressed a button, and the airplane landed itself. And it was it was one of those moments where where, where you know you you spend so much time reading about the future of, of aviation, the future technology that that's on the horizon about pilotless airplanes and, and airplanes making decisions and, 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 you know, kind of unmanned systems is sort of this, you know, well, you know, inherently it doesn't have people in it, right. You know, it's, 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 it's very separate. So, you know, seeing that and experiencing that and, and immersing myself in that was really an incredible opportunity to, to see what the future live, like really just firsthand, see what the future of aviation is going to look like, and then you start thinking about all the implications from that stem from that around uh, around human factors and automation and, and what happens when this doesn't work, right? You know, and and how do you certify all this in terms of the regulatory relationships? So, you know, what, what what we we did at the time was looking at sort of we didn't really focus on okay, so how does the technology work? Okay, well, you know, we got into a little bit of that, but not how does it operate, but really what are the implications for this? You know, what are the implications for, you know, we're against the backdrop of of all the certification discussions around the 737 MAX and it's it's you know it's automation, how it how it functioned uh, in in both of the the uh, the Lion Air and Ethiopian crashes. So there's all these different pieces that, that kind of fuse together. I think was just a, a something that I'm particularly proud of uh, in terms of the final result that it really kind of melded all of this together. Um, and and you know, but that's the thing, right? It's never just was one item in in um, in isolation, it really becomes a a the 
intersection of all these different pieces together. And that's, and from, and, you know, being a proprietor and editor and, and, and reporter in my own little playground here that, that, that we've created, you know, I love being able to do that and being able to, to take all of those different threads and, and weave them together in a way that I don't, I don't, you know, I really think that, that, you know, you might have standalone items elsewhere, but to put it all together really, I think is just a great example of kind of the core of, of what we do and, and what, what, we're, what we're really ultimately trying to accomplish. It truly makes it one of a kind and the ability to see that full picture and understand that it's not just one after another, after another, after another, it's, it's how does this all play together? And I think within my own work and some of the, the efforts that I've put on with regards to pilot supply, and I know that Courtney's had some pretty good analysis with regards to where pilot supply is and where it goes. And also, obviously, the automation piece plays into that with an auto land system. First, you can land itself. Well, why not take off and fly and cruise by itself, yeah. too? Um, but it is not just we're not doing enough pilots. It's the airplanes aren't being manufactured fast enough. They're too expensive. There's a lot of other pieces that go into this. So I really like that idea. And I really like the that kind of thought of let's get into the nitty gritty details and work within that space. Thank you for that. And obviously, we'll put the pitch in for the air current at the end of the episode. Um, and you're all more than welcome now to go find that if, you, if you'd if you like uh, to go to see that article that John talks about. Actually, I'd like to kind of swing now towards current events and some of the things that are going on in the aviation industry today that you've written about, that you've analyzed. Uh, and if I were to go back to episode one of the P-56 podcast with Bill Swellbar, he predicted a fairly slower return to what we would consider to be quote-unquote normal flight level 2019 of passengers and air service than the model that the air current has. I think you were looking at potentially being back at 80% of 2019 levels by 2021, mid to late 2021, if I remember correctly. What drives this kind of thought process but for a more aggressive return comparative to some of the others that are out there? You know, it's, it's funny to, to hear that we're only back at, at 80% is, is actually an aggressive. Yeah an aggressive take, you know, I, I, I think it's, it's, it's interesting because, uh, you know, a lot of the, the, the forces driving that are, are, are really, are really interesting. And frankly, I, I would just call, I would just call at one kind of caution. We, we kind of sort of bounded the upper and lower limit and the, in the 80% by mid 2021 was, was sort of the, the, the midpoint of that. So, you know, there is quite a bit of uncertainty with, within that. I mean, I think, uh, you know, the good news is um, to date our, our estimates for um, for recovery, Courtney's estimates for recovery have been really darn close to what's actually unfolded. And, you know, a lot of, um, a lot of that is driven by, um, you know, there are, there, here's the thing. I mean, it's like, as we look at that, I mean, th things are going to come back slowly but there are things that ultimately you know may forever be shifted so number one the availability of a vaccine is going to be is going to be huge that's 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 a that's going to be a big driver and, and thankfully we've we've now seen progress on that with the, with the pfizer announcement uh to that you know they've got a vaccine that's 90 percent effective or has the potential to be 90 percent effective let's not get ahead of ourselves um you know that will be a huge huge driver um both uh, economically, but also psychologically. 
And, you know, Court's most recent um, uh, forecast for, for recovery really uh, actually came, came before that. So if that wasn't even factoring in that, that factoring that in, you know, it, it's funny. The one thing that, that we've looked at that I think is, is really important is, is that it is this industry cannot wait to get back to a point where all we have to worry about is the economy. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, if, all, if, if, if we only have to worry about an economic downturn and slow economic growth and, and whether or not people have the money in their pocket to fly, that is a fantastic problem to have because the industry understands how to adjust to that. A pandemic, public health, people's perception of, of safety when they're out and about, that's a totally different ballgame. So once, so once you get back to a point where you're only worrying about the economy, you actually have a bit of a baseline to, to understand uh, what the forces are at play and then how, how everything gets back. And, and it's interesting. Um, one, of, one of my, my favorite uh, recent analyses that, that Courtney did that I thought was absolutely, um, absolutely brilliant was he looked at the correlation or, or actually lack thereof, between the number of COVID cases and, and people's willingness to fly. And it's very interesting. And, and, and it's a very different question. So there's two different questions. There's, okay, does air travel increase the number of cases of COVID? That's one question that we did not get into with this, right? That's not, that we, we, that's not, that's a different question. However, we asked the question is, does COVID cause air travel, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, and, and what we found, uh, what Courtney found was that it, incidentally, the, 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 the number of cases, as, even as they're going up is not correlated to the number of people flying hmm. in terms of the amount of traffic, uh, going through the U S air traffic system, which I think is, is fascinating. That is fascinating. What we did find was that the number of deaths did correlate directly, uh, as we saw the spike, obviously in the spring, uh, you know, in, in large population centers, that's when obviously traffic dropped to its lowest point. Uh, and, and so, so what you see is as, as therapeutics are, are developed, as treatment uh, improves uh, and the death rate uh, is able to drop relative to the number of cases where we were back in the spring, then you actually begin to see uh, the opportunities for people actually return to flying. Again, the vaccine opens up a whole new world for that because it's, it tells it tells businesses that that you know, you know if they're if their folks are getting vaccinated, they have travel travel records, and it's effective, right? And it's, if it's a really genuinely effective vaccine, then you you begin to to steer this in a way that says, okay, you know, when can the first signs of business travel come back? You know, visiting clients, right? you know, you know, sales meetings, um, because, you know, it's funny, it, it, I forgive the, the aside for a moment, but when it comes to, to business travel and sales travel, um, court makes a really great point. He says, you know, the question isn't when are you going to get back to business travel is how quickly will your competitor get back to business travel? And in the moment they do it, you're going to do it because you can't sit on the sidelines anymore. Absolutely. And so, so within that, but then, but then again, someone has to move first and <laughs> no one's really sure who's going to actually make that move. 
One of the things that I see and I always caution against when I see it in some of the aviation groups and uh, aviation message boards and some aviation Twitter uh, is looking just plainly at the TSA numbers because that is not an indicator as to the number of true, really valuable, I mean, every passenger is valuable, particularly when you're in a pandemic, but the true high value business travelers that are traveling. And, you know, you and Court had spelled it out very clearly in your analyses of sales travel and convention travel being the indicators that you need to look out for. And from what it seems that that's not coming back yet. Yeah. We're a long way away on convention travel. And I, I think that'll be the, you know, int- like whether it's company events internally for travel or um, or big conferences um, that, you know, we you and I both spent a lot of time at mm-hmm. uh, before this are not are going to take a, the longest time to come back. And I think the, you know, um, one of one of the sort of things that have been has bent the curve, you know, back in mid-October, um, court took a really hard look at what happens if if the CARES Act payroll provisions are not extended for aviation. And obviously they haven't been, right? We don't have a, st- a stimulus renewal at this, you know, here we are sitting and you know, talking on the, on, on the 13th of November, um, you know, look that, that, you know, 50, that 80% by mid 2021 number looks a lot more like 65 to 75%. Um, you know, it, it takes a huge chunk. It really gets close to the lower bounds of, 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 um, the predicted range of recovery that that court has, has, has crunched here. And I think it's it and it's sort of intuitive. You know, if you don't have staff, if you if your planes are parked, if uh, if if you don't have the infrastructure, literally just by, by virtue of scaling down, uh, if you don't have the routes, if you don't have the schedule, you literally can't recover. Yeah, I mean, you, like, like you need to have these things in place. Like everyone says, oh, so when do you get back to 2019 levels? Well, do you have a 2019 sized fleet? Oh, uh oh, we don't. <laughs> right? yeah. And do you have do you have a 2019 institutional memory of staff and operations that can maintain that level? Exactly, exactly. And if you don't have the number of pilots you need, if you don't have the number of flight attendants you need, if you don't have the number of, you know. Gate agents, reservation folks, all, all, like everything, right? The whole maintenance person, all of the infrastructure required to run an airline at a 2019 level, you can't get back to 2019 levels. It just, it, it just not, it, you know, it doesn't, it just doesn't, you know, it just doesn't happen that way. You can't flip a switch, which is why, you know, it, when the industry made the case for the payroll protection in CARES Act, that's why they were making the case, right? Because it because you can't just throttle this thing up and down with it, you know, violently because that's when it breaks and you you run into a whole host of other issues. So, you know, I think um, I think one of the big guides early next year is going to be a, is is what is in a stimulus package and whether or not the industry literally has the capacity to get back to that point. I completely agree, and I think. Within that as well, uh, you're going to have to potentially see uh, the airlines are going to have to look at where their inefficiencies were at those 2019 levels and become more efficient. And 
the advice I've given to a lot of different organizations in the last six months has been if you're not taking this time to look towards that future and how you can jump back quicker comparative to the others, you're going to be left in the dust comparative to those that did. And I, I think we're going to see that, that a lot of these carriers were in survival mode for a short period of time and are now kind of sitting and waiting, but they will need to start preparing for what that future looks like because there will be a drive and the numbers, there's arguments out there for pilots as well. And that's anytime you start talking about a pilot shortage, even when you're not needing pilots now is bound to start an argument. But there are, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there are arguments to be said that it's going to come back and it's going to be worse than it was before. Um, and it's not just going to be pilots. It's going to be maintenance. It's going to be yeah. gate agents. It's going to be flight attendants. And yeah. I even look at the, uh, the the point of view that sticks out in my head is when um, the Ed Bastian from Delta says that they lost 400,000 years of experience to early retirements at Delta. And that's amazing. That's I'm thinking, incredible. I mean, we know the folks that are involved in a lot of these different behind the scenes departments that run the airline behind the scenes operationally and business continuity wise, marketing wise, and that all of these folks that took early outs were the people that were running the things behind the scenes and seeing what's going to be happening next. So for the enterprising young people that are out there that might be looking, I think you, you bring up a good point about the need to get back to those 2019 levels. If you are in that place of in college or elsewhere, I would say you're, you're setting yourself up well, particularly if you can be um, engaging and strategic and, uh, thoughtful in how you go about this. Absolutely. And and look, I think, you know, the shorter way of saying what you just beautifully said is there has been a generational shift in this industry. Mm -hmm. And and the and what had been a, um, you know, a lot of uh, older staff that had the institutional knowledge that that lived it. And by the way, lived lived, you know, the 90s and 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 not and and the financial crisis mm-hmm. you know sort of you know mid late career folks who have taken either buyouts or going to a different industry uh early retirement so on and so forth that that really it becomes a, it, the, the generational shift is happening a lot faster it was going to happen over the decade but i think it happened literally in the last 10 months right and so so that that's going to shift a lot of thinking around the around the industry and and i'm i'm I think that's going to be hugely crucial. I think one of the big things that I think, um, you know, particularly I think Southwest has really focused on is is institutional stability. And yes, they've had um, folks who have taken early, early, you know, early retirement and buyouts and so on and so forth, and really attractive packages that they've offered. And they're they're really only now just starting to talk about furloughs if they if they can't get sort of the the economic environment that they're that they're looking at and obviously southwest has never had a furlough mm-hmm. and i think they've they've always understood something that i i think that has been uh um far less appreciated at a at a you know a, a large legacy carrier like united or american which is that laying off people is incredibly painful obviously yes right but it's also it's also more expensive it is it, over in the, in the long run because you have to when you have to grow again 
you have to, you have to number one, you have to onboard people, you have to retrain them, you have to, you know, get get the wages where where you know at the at the at the right level. But literally, the exit and the entry, and the exit and the entry, and these wild swings, right, are incredibly are are disruptive to your to your overall system. And I think that you know the the airlines that are going to be most well positioned. You know, through this crisis, what we've seen really are ones that, that have focused on 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 maintaining a, a level of of stability uh, within their workforce. Because fundamentally, you know, you can you can swing airplanes up and down, right? Like it's their airplanes, but the people fundamentally are the ones that 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 make any of this happen. Absolutely. I kind of want to switch gears a little bit with this and, and move into an area that you've especially found a lot of success and focus in. And I'll, I'll continue with the same subject. Are you seeing these similar kind of moves and needs on the OEM and manufacturer and supplier side? Where where do you see this kind of driving? That's a great question. Yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, it's really interesting because I, I think, so if you, if you think about the value chain, in the in the industry right it starts it starts with what we're willing to you and i as the flying public are willing to pay for a ticket or willing to buy a ticket at all right that sets the economics for the entire business that follows whether you know whether it's a leisure or business whatever but that that node drives everything underneath it and so the oem side of it so the boeing airbus Embraer. Uh, Bombardier, which has now exited uh, officially uh, to to Mitsubishi, and Mitsubishi, which is also now exiting, exiting its own quest for a for a regional jet, they fundamentally are B to C. So sorry, sorry, B to B. B they're 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 business to business. So they're 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 one rung above removed from those that touch the consumer directly. So they as a, as a supplier to the airlines. And so what's interesting is that I see two massively divergent paths that I think are going to actually steer what happens in the industry over the next 15 to 20 years, uh, particularly between Boeing and Airbus. You know, I, I see, um, I see U S aviation and the U S supply base. Um, there are steps that the U S government has taken to stabilize. There's some, you know, advanced, they advanced, advanced some payments, accelerated some contracts. And this is mostly happening on the defense side, but for the most part, I think that the, the, the view and then the policy approach of the United States has been very hands-off. Let the market sort things out. If Boeing needs to shrink, if Boeing needs to lay off, you know, thousands of people, if they need to resize their business, that'll be what they'll do. And then the supply base will adjust and some will go bankrupt and some will get bought by private equity and it'll be consolidation and roll up and you kind of you know, just let the process play out. But there's not really an active hand of the government kind of driving that. On the European side, I literally see 180 degrees difference. You know, you, you've got you've got um, the French and German governments having, you know, very particular you know, conditions and um in levels of, of institutional support to maintain certain levels of employment at Airbus, for example, a, a very coordinated, um, you know, supplier, um, supplier sort of strategy. I mean, the the German unemployment system has, as in as in the past, uh, there was during the global financial crisis, there was no change in German unemployment during the global financial crisis. 
zero. It was completely unchanged based on, on uh, effectively paying a portion of the wages as sort of the halftime scheme where so, so you've got the company paying, paying a portion, you've got the government paying uh, the balance while they're still working. But on, on, but on a scaled back number of hours. So it keeps, so we think about stability, right? Institutional knowledge. I mean, you, you see a, a very different type of coordinated effort uh, that is allowing the industry to sort of steer itself for the goals that it's going for. And, and look, I, you, know, you, we, we, you know, you mentioned electric aviation before and green aviation. The push by Europe right now in terms of the Green Deal European Commission efforts to, you know, to get to meet the Paris Accords and be carbon neutral by 2050. This is resulting in a very deliberate and accelerated um, technology strategy across European aviation, whether it's Rolls-Royce and its move toward electric uh, electric motors or Technum just a few weeks ago saying that they're going to they're actually going to make the jump from from, you know, uh, piston powered aircraft to electric aircraft they'll still do both but they're building an electric aircraft now to go in that direction airbus has moved toward hydrogen this is a a very deliberate coordinated strategy to preserve the industry and i and i don't see the same happening stateside and i think that's going to going to drive a lot of what happens um you know there you know, i think the rates of growth are going to are going to reflect that uh, you know, the U.S. may bounce back faster in a lot of ways, but but the slower sort of cl- technology climb by Europe may actually end up creating more overall stability. So this is going to be a really interesting test for uh, on the on the on the OEM technology supplier side. That's going to drive a lot of what co- happens over the next decade. decade we, are, and a half. we are in a very strange place with regards to the OEM and aircraft manufacturing, particularly for the airline side. But I would even say cargo as well with regards to what airplanes are out there on the market and what specific holes there are in those offerings on the market today with regards to what are the airlines, what is air travel going to look like in 20 years when we don't have a viable 30 to 70 seat aircraft to fill in the regional markets. We don't have yet a incredibly viable single aisle 200 seat aircraft other than the A321 NEO. so, you know, there are some very interesting and unique holes in those product offerings that will likely have some pretty significant effects on how we travel in the future as well. Absolutely. And I think the decisions that are being made now are going to, to, going to drive that in a, in a very profound way. You know, we're, we're hearing about, you know, Embraer is looking at a, uh, examining a turboprop potentially between 70 and 100 seats. Granted, that's the you know, core of, of today's, you know, scoped regional market. Um, but, but your point about 30 to 50 seats, I mean, a lot of, a lot of those airplanes went away because of, because of, um, scope, because of upgaging, because of pilot costs, because of older technology and, you know, the OEMs just shifted upward. You know, we've got, I think what's going to be really, really interesting is, is, is to see what comes out of the hybrid and, and hybrid electric technology sector in the next five years, because I think that is going to to begin to bend the curve significantly on economics that I think that everyone believes is going to happen in that sector, right? I mean, you know, no one is talking seriously about an, uh, an electric hundred seater, right? You know, or a hybrid, you know, like, yes, we'd love to get there. That's the goal, but you're not going to get there 
in one in one leap. You're going to get there, you know, step by step. And and look here, just to give you a peek inside my own brain, you know, look, you go back 100 years or 120 years. It's crazy. 120 years, uh, and you go back to the birth of of aviation, and what allowed the Wright brothers to fly in the first place? Fundamentally, it was the car. It was the internal combustion engine on early automobiles. And their ability to take that engine and adapt it with enough power and, and reliability that you could actually get off the ground with a wing that you designed. So, so what does that tell me 120 20 years later? Well, it tells me that, that the battery technology that's being developed and fielded for electric cars, Teslas, for example, you know, VW's got a got a whole big strategy, you know, uh, underway as well. And you know, you're seeing Chinese manufacturers come up with electric automobiles. That the automobile propulsion sector is going to, I think, be a huge catalyst that allows a breakthrough slowly, but in, in incrementally, that we start seeing the okay, well, hey, you know, the last flight of of the day on December seventeenth, you know, nineteen oh three was fifty nine seconds. Right. Yep. <laughs> you know, yeah, exactly. And, 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 and then, you know, and then they go, you know, a minute and a half and five minutes and 10 minutes and they go fly higher. So it's a higher, faster, farther type approach that we're now in yep. uh, with, with this, this new propulsion technology. Yeah. And look, we can get we can get there. It's just going to take a while and it's going to have to be step by step. And we're going to see, you know, we're going to see a, a return to this sort of, you know, 1920s, 1930s, 1940s sort of advanced technology uh, development, but it's going to be by turning the existing propulsion systems that we have into higher and higher performance. And I, I, that's the thing that like really excites me, you know, amid, amid where we stand right now, that's, that, that's what gets me up in the morning, you know, in the morning and, and, and <laughs> it gets me going. It's awesome. <laughs> I, I think it's fascinating. I mean, I, and looking back at the history of where the Wright brothers and the other early aviation pioneers really got their start with it, it wasn't just cars either. It was being able to miniaturize the engine to motorcycles that drove a lot of this. And if you look at some of those big luminaries that were in the aviation industry at the time, the Wright brothers, obviously, but especially uh, Glenn Curtis, who got started in the industry because of motorcycle manufacturing was where he got his start, if I remember my aviation history lectures correctly. Um, but what kind of draw will that have to bring in new entrepreneurial spirit to the aviation industry with electric uh, propulsion? So that's a very exciting kind of thing. And I think that is more than likely going to be the future of what regional travel looks like of bringing people from those small cities to the bigger city where they can get on a, a hydrogen airplane or a, a jet a powered airplane whether it's biofuel or not um, to get on those longer destinations until we can really develop the technology yeah and i think i think you're you're, you're absolutely right and i think the you know I, I think we're going to be with hydrocarbon-based aviation for a long time. I don't. I don't see a full. I think you know. Look, I, I. I think we will probably exit this this earthly plane with with aircraft still flying on jet A. Uh, I, I. I think that's. It's going to take a long time to to get to that point. Um, however, I think that again, if you look in. Jet fuel has been the bane of this industry's existence. <laughs> you know, it, it, it's, it is the, the, the biggest variable cost. 
you know, if you can, if you can take that out of the system, I mean, what does that do to how the economics of the business? And I think that that is really gonna is gonna drive a lot of this. I mean, it's funny. I was I was seeing a debate uh, from someone the other day who was making a political political argument, saying that you know. You know, all the efforts by the government to reduce greenhouse gas emissions is going to is going to make tickets more expensive and it's going to it's going to keep you from from getting from, you know, Spokane to, to Seattle. And, it you know, it's really going to get in the way. And I, I, I stopped it and thought, OK, wait, OK. On the one level, yes. On the other hand. Aren't we talking about. You know the the technology that's going to fill that in. I mean, the great thing about about a free market economy, right? Fundamentally, is that if there is a demand for this, so the the entrepreneurial spirit. By the way, the entrepreneurial spirit can also be funded by governments from a policy perspective, right? You know, like we went to the moon, right? You know, it, it gave us Tang and Velcro. You know, so the things come out of that. You know, that's that's that that's the that's the 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 tongue in cheek example. But but if there is a demand for flying between Spokane and Seattle at a lower cost that intersects with with the technology push that we see that is that's a that's the thing that's going to make this industry what it is for the next 50 years if it's going to survive it might be in a smaller form given given how how you know the fact that we're you know, you and I are not having this conversation in person. I didn't, I didn't have to, to fly to you to do this, right? Exactly, we can, yeah. we can, I can, like, right. You know, we don't have to sit in a radio, a radio booth to do this. And matter the technology, you know, whether it's zoom or, or whatever allows you to do this. I mean, we've, we've been forced to get used to that. So there's going to be part of the industry that, that goes away just by virtue of that. However, the, that's like the reason for going, but for everyone else, the, the accessibility of that, um, I think is going to be is going to be really really important r- relative to the environmental cost and also the cost that comes out of our pockets. And I think that's like I said that these are going to be the 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 types of conversations and the types of of strategies that we're going to see develop from the successful players over the next uh, you know five ten fifteen years. Well, I want to continue on the path of uh, OEMs and manufacturers, and obviously one of the areas with which you especially have. Uh, major bones, if you will, or, or really had a, an important presence in the industry and in the the uh, press has been with regards to Boeing and in particular the 737 Max. Uh, where we stand today, here on Friday the 13th of November, uh, 2020, is that the 737 Max is in its final stages as it gets ready for certification and returning to the skies. Or what kind of hurdles remain for Boeing to get that airplane in the air? Yeah, so it's a great question. This is the end of you know twenty months of of a twenty month grounding, and it might have felt like a marathon, but it was actually a sprint. And at the end of that sprint, the marathon actually begins. And it enters a whole new phase for for Boeing. It enters a new phase for the supply chain that builds 737 Maxes. It for the airlines, for their crews, flight attendants, for the people that fly the airplane uh, as passengers. And so, it enters a very different phase uh, that I think will um, validate or reveal how well or badly. Um, this entire situation has shifted the thinking 
around people's willingness to get on this airplane. And so there, there are logistical questions and then there are the psychological sort of consumer questions. The logistical questions are, okay, first you got to get the airplanes out of storage. If you're the, if you're, if you're a, a United, a Southwest, uh, you know, um, American in the U S I mean, those are the, the three carriers who are operating it here. They're going to be first, um, with the FAA on grounding, which, which right now is expected sometime in the vicinity of, of, uh, November 18th, um, that kicks off a process. So at that point you can start training pilots. You can, you can get them the, the, the revised training, um, you get the, 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 the crews familiar with, uh, you know, the, the new checklist, this, you know, the health simulator session to get requalified on the airplane, reflecting all the changes. There are about 50 simulators, uh, worldwide right now to do that. Um, so that's the flight. That's the training piece. Then you have the airplane piece. These airplanes have been out of revenue service since mid March of 2019. Uh, They've been powered on periodically to keep kind of fresh. However, uh, there is there are a lot of airplanes that have been sitting, and you're going to have to kind of go through the process of of reconstituting that fleet. So they need to be uh, rewired um, as a as a function of the airworthiness directive that the FAA has put has putting out uh, based on some additional findings that were were kind of done through analysis that there could be issue with the with uh, the wire separation um, that never actually manifested, that just the FAA found this and said, okay, you need to make this change also. Uh, and then you've installed the new software and then you've just effectively refurbished these airplanes to a point where they're ready for, for service. And, uh, you know, it, it's interesting because, you know, there have been documented incidents that have resulted from aircraft being in storage for a long time. And I think that that's going to be the thing that really drives a lot of the public perception, because there's also going to be an intense focus from a media perspective around any hiccup, big or small, that happens with this airplane, at least for the for the early days of, of its return to service. So, OK, we're going to have our, our airworthiness directive and our the finalization of, of the training. Everything kicks off, you know, second half of November. Right now, the only airline in the U.S. that has uh, the max in their schedule is American, and they're looking at re-entry into service um, just after Christmas. So they're going to, you know, they're not going to drop this into a holiday schedule, uh, which obviously looks different, a lot more different than it would would have been given COVID. Um, so they're going to give it a very easy re-entry, early January. You know, not a lot of people flying to begin with, so you're not you're not going to be stressing it, and let it kind of ease its way back in. And so at that point, you know, I don't see the airlines doing, you know, a big marketing push. Hey, the max is back. It's safe now. You know, I think they're, I think this is the time to kind of like shut up about it. You know, it's just like, let it earn its keep day in and day out, operate safely, operate reliably, operate uneventfully. And, you know, boring is what you want if you're an airline in Boeing. So that's that that process for the airlines, and I think that's going to tell us a lot about what what ha- what comes from there. Um, the second huge part of this is if you're Boeing, and there are about 450 maxes that were built between the grounding and and um, and now actually those are running running at a low level of production, but they really went to the, they halted production back uh, at the end of last year. But in the interim, so 
you know, March of 19 through, through now, they've got 450 airplanes that they need to deliver to airlines. And given the state of the economy, uh, a lot of airlines have canceled mm-hmm. or they've deferred. So a lot of those airplanes are going to need to be, number one, finished because they sort of, they're, they're outstanding jobs on a lot, a lot of them. Um, and they've been sitting for a while. And a lot of them, most of them, wear the colors of the airline they were originally intended for. And a lot of those are not going to go to the airline that they originally intended for. Um, so you, you take that and you say, well, okay, there's a lot of work that has to be done to reconfigure these airplanes, get them, get them finished. And oh, by the way, can these airlines take delivery of a new airplane? Do you have the financial wherewithal to do that? And given the state of the world right now, that's a huge question. So it enters into a very, uh, a very interesting process for Boeing to get these 450 airplanes to the to customers, those that they were originally intended for, and those that they have to resell and and rejigger uh, the delivery stream based on these four. So you know that's going to take probably till 2022 or 2023 to get all those airplanes out as they're starting to like build new airplanes starting. Uh, now, but they're going to be ramping up over the, over the next year, year and a half to level about 31 airplanes per month. Um, it's just it, the the it's it's a heck of a dance that that's going to have to take place. Talking about delivering the aircraft from where they're parked and having to get ready, so that instead of just one delivery center in Seattle, they have now I think it was two or three, including Seattle, that they'll set up to try to get these airplanes out to customers. Yeah, what they'll do is so all the airplanes will still will be delivered out of Seattle, but they're going to effectively set up these feeder lines uh, for modif- for modifying the airplanes and getting them finished uh, around the country. So they're obviously Moses Lake, uh, uh, Renton, Boeing Field, uh, Kelly Air Force Base in San Antonio, uh, and really try to like you know the logistical effort is going to be incredible to get these these moving. But it's it's it is going to drive a lot of what Boeing is able to do over the next over the next several years with respect to literally just bringing in cash in the front door. I mean, the max is Boeing's most important airplane. Has been this a question about that. I've kind of thought about for a long time and having followed Boeing for a very, very long time myself. And obviously with the work that you're doing, Boeing had a lot of kind of missteps through this process to get to where they're at today. Do you think they've learned their lesson or are they starting to learn their lesson or their changes that are being made or are they still kind of plodding along with uh, a sense that what they're doing is fine? That's a great question. And I don't think we're going to know the answer definitively until the airplane really gets back in service. You know, it's one important signal for themselves to say, hey, we have an airplane that is certified and can deliver again. And once you get out of that, that crisis sprint that they've been in, effectively since October of 2018 with the crash of Lion, of, uh, of Lion Air, uh, you know, getting this back to some sense of, of normalcy for them, given everything going, it's not normal. It's, it's incredibly disruptive and it's not, and it's nowhere near a drumbeat of, of, of normal, but, but having that, I think is going to give them a platform off which to push about and to begin to think about what comes next. Um, the consensus is that that they're not going to be able, at least for the next several years, in a, to be in a position to launch a, a an all new aircraft. You know, 
there are going to be thousands and thousands of, of A321 Neos and, X, and A321 XLRs that are going to be um, handed over to airlines between now and, say, 2028, when a notional 200-seater would come into play. So there are all kinds of questions about the size of the market, the size of you know what, what you do in terms of product development, uh, and where you focus your attention. But these are the questions that are going to have to be to be answered from a product side, strategically, right? The product is the product strategy is one piece of this, but strategically, I think a lot of a, a lot of the criticism that's been lobbed at, at Boeing is that that they had they under they were underinvesting over mm-hmm. the last you know half decade uh, when they needed to to ramp up investments um and with a with a with an overwhelming focus on returning cash to shareholders and and buying buying back shares and and increasing the value of the stock and so you know how whether or not that moderates in a very significant way or whether or not that that continues to be what they optimize the institution for that is going to be your key key indicator of how they have learned how to conduct themselves I find it fascinating within this too that Boeing and in more recent times the airlines themselves have kind of been a uh, the poster child for this uh, the the thought of business from the 1990s and 2000s and early 2010s or 2010s of increasing that share price delivering value to the shareholders to the detriment of a lot of other different parts of the operation and I think it's fascinating to see that the aviation industry and aerospace industry has been the one to show some of the weak areas that are the weak spots that come from doing that, uh, whether it's Boeing or whether it's the airlines themselves. Absolutely. And I think that, I think, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, executives will tell you that they're, you know, positioning their businesses for the long term, so on and so forth, while, while maintaining what, what their actions certainly their words might be one thing, but their actions certainly suggest that that they're more focused on, on, you know, quarterly metrics. And you, if you don't kind of look at the horizon and think long term, I mean, look, he, you know, let's let's make a list of, of businesses that have think long term and have not focused on, on quarterly results and 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 share price. You know, look, the performance of those of those businesses are radically different from one another. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's, exactly. It's not, it's not and, and it's not a secret. No, like like it, the the formula's out there. The question is, are are they willing? Are they willing to 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 bend their own strategy, and 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 in some respects break their strategy, to f- begin to think in a in a in a in a way that allows them to to worry less about sort of who's, you know, what investor is knocking at their door or demanding a, a whatever at any given moment and focus, focus on the share price. And it's like, no, well, you know, it starts with how you structure executive compensation. It starts with how much stock you give to your executives. It starts with, I mean, it's a lot of different, different things that have to, have to be shifted, not just say, Hey, we're not going to worry about our share price, but, but literally remove that incentive and, and, and how you and how you build that and that's that's not that's not just a Boeing thing yeah it's a that's an industry thing yeah 
So I have two more questions uh, for you before we kind of wrap it up, being cognizant of your time and our listeners' time. Um, the next question, obviously we sit now post-election and we are moving ahead with a presidential transition from the Trump administration to uh, Biden administration. Do you have any thoughts or ideas about how a Biden administration would potentially affect airlines, aircraft manufacturers, and the aviation industry as a whole? You know, it's interesting. I think uh, what we're probably going to see more of, given given the engagement, and I'll take this kind of in pieces, given the, from a technology perspective, given the engagement uh, and desire for rejoining the Paris Accords, I mean, that's going to be a day one executive action by, by uh, the Biden administration that I think that is going to begin to shift uh, the focus in the technology sector around um, how NASA funding, you know, goes into sort of green research. And I think that's going to be an interesting thread to watch as, you know, you know, even just a few weeks ago, NASA was saying that, you know, we need to start investing now to have technology demonstrators ready in 24, 25, 26 uh, to, to have the, the pieces of technology ready for next generation single aisle. Of course, they didn't say Boeing single aisle. They just, you know, but you understand the, you know, we all understand the implications of what that means when NASA says that, 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 you know, where this, where this goes. Um, and yes, you know, there, there have been plenty of disputes over, over government funding of R and D and, and broadly speaking, the WTO trade disputes that have taken place have, have blessed those, those expenditures, you know, direct launch aid is a separate issue. Uh, but but again, I think uh, re-engagement in that, uh, in, in the Paris Accords, is going to steer investment by the government, by you know, budgetary priorities that will, will allocate more toward green technology. I think that's a really, that's that's going to be a big a big piece of that. Um, I think the other, you know, I think the, the, the second piece of that, I think, is we're going to see, you know, certainly the traditional political base of, of, uh, of the Democratic Party being in labor. I think we're going to see. Um, I think we're going to see a you know a, a stimulus package, a COVID stimulus package that has uh, provisions that will reactivate uh, the payroll protections that lapsed on October first. I think that's going to. I think that that's that. I think is going to. I don't know if it'll be at the same levels, but certainly I think to some extent we're going to see a lot of a lot of that. And the you know a lot of these are, are union jobs, and I think that's going to play that's going to play a piece um, in the in the immediate term. I think the the piece that I'm most interested to see is what happens in the relationship between the Biden administration and China. And uh, I, I've asked a lot of folks about this who who watch China, you know, you know, aircraft executives who have watched sort of the the rhetoric, you know, be intensified between. Uh, the rhetoric and the actions be intensified between the kind of antagonism between the U.S. and China, and I, you know, I wonder how much of of that continues, um, and whether or not it would have, uh, if, you know, it when you know the, the when the Trump administration does exit, uh, by by all uh, by all uh, factual accounts that will happen on 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 January twentieth, that whether or not the China policy will will maintain itself to as an aggressive degree, but also if if there if the Trump administration had gotten a second term, then 
would it have actually pulled back even more? Well, would there have been a significant softening based on the electoral politics of the moment that that sort of steers steers, you know, uh, a uh, a dry a policy drive that would be less aggressive. Well, you know, in, in so many words, you know, I had one you know retired uh, veteran um, Boeing executive tell me he said, "Look, I think a lot of this." push toward toward you know antagonism with China has been electoral politics you know it plays well with 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 uh, with voters that that he, he's trying to, to court and that once we're through the other side of that and there's no re-election on the other side of that things soften considerably and they get a deal done and 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 you know whether it's uh, Taiwan Xinjiang or, or Hong Kong or all the questions around that or or you know TikTok you know all of that sort of just kind of some of it, you know, eases off in terms of the economic relations where, you know, they can, they can ink an economic win, uh, given, given the, the state of play and it actually begins to kind of slow down. Um, and the, the flip side of that is, does this sort of hard line kind of continue with the Biden administration? And, and, and you sort of get this, this sort of counterintuitive uh, result on the other side of it. I think that's going to be one of the most important things to watch, um, given, given everything in relation to tariffs, given everything in relation to the fact that you know, Boeing hasn't uh, received an order from China uh, since 2017. And, and that's partially political. That's uh, partially economic. I mean, Chinese economic growth was slowing. Um, now China looks to be the only stable market uh, – for for airlines right now. I mean, Air China, China Eastern, China Southern are all profitable again. Yeah. I mean, Mind-blowing. Yeah. Given given the state of 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 play in the US and Europe. So, you know, their their role as a market for commercial aviation is going to I think uh, play a significant role in how these policy decisions are made uh, in the US. Well, it will be definitely interesting to see uh, where things go in the future. And once that transition does, as you say, factually occur on January 20th, um, where things go, especially because Biden has been considered to be a little bit more hawkish towards China comparative to some of the other potential Democratic candidates that were in the race at the beginning of 2019. Or 2020. Well, 2019 and 2020. Time flies when you're. Time, <laughs> time flies, flies when, when you're. The world is falling apart. The world is falling apart. Yes. Um, well, that's great. I have one last question, and this is the same question I've asked every guest on the podcast since I've started, and it's the the shtick of the podcast, if you will. If you could wave a magic wand and change or fix one thing about the aviation industry as it stands today, what would you change and why? So, if the aviation industry is going to have any right to significantly grow over the next forever, forever period. Um, it has to rethink its relationship with the environment. And it is aviation, commercial aviation is only about 3% of global emissions, but it's a very visible 3%. So if I could wave my magic wand and say, Hey, this is gone. I would, I would uh, make aviation carbonless or carbon neutral instantaneously. That would, I think, that would that completely changes uh, a lot of the rules of the game in terms of its 
its views on growth, its views on technology, its views on on economics uh, that I think would be massively, massively beneficial in the long run. And not to mention, really good for the planet Earth. Absolutely. Where we where we all happen to live. So, <laughs> so yes, that, that that's that I would I would love to see carbonless aviation. Well, that's a great answer. Well, thank you, John. I'd like to thank you for joining me here on the podcast today. I've really enjoyed getting some more insight from you. And uh, learning more about the process, you've opened my eyes to a couple of different areas that I hadn't previously thought before, particularly when you talked about automotive development and how that tracks with the origin of aviation today. It's been sitting right in front of my face for the last year or two, but man, you just made those dots connect right there. So thank you for that. My pleasure. This was this was tons of fun, and thank you for having me. And this was a fantastic discussion, and excited to 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 watch the the podcast grow. I'm 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 honored to be in the in the first ten episodes. So thank you. It's, it's, it's going to be fun. It's great to have you, and you're always welcome to come back. And I'm going to try to see if I can nail down Court to come on too at some point, and so then I can really hammer home questions about why he chooses certain analyses versus doesn't. But uh, that I will save for a podcast with him. Sounds good. He's he he's uh he's way smarter than I am. So you know it should be an even better discussion. <laughs> Definitely. Well, you can find John and his reporting and analyses at theaircurrent.com. You can also follow him on Twitter at John Ostrauer. As always, if you have any questions, feedback, or ideas for me at the P56 Podcast, don't hesitate to contact or reach out via email at p56podcast at gmail.com. Instagram at P56 Podcast, or like our Facebook page at P56 Aviation Podcast. Stay tuned for some very unique and interesting episodes to come in the very near future. John, once again, thank you for joining me, and to the listeners, have a great day.